you are listening to the Christian Music Archive podcast, part of the New Release Today podcast network. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I share stories about Christ, community, and music, chatting with musical guests who you will find listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Since you are listening in today, I'm guessing that you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Or maybe you saw that my guest today is Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters, and you thought, I've got to see what Greg is up to. Whatever the case, thanks for listening today. I don't take it for granted that you are here. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is getting to meet people whose work I respect. I also enjoy meeting new artists that are just getting started and hearing their stories. And sometimes, like today's episode, I get to meet someone who is new to me but has been making music for a long time and someone that I'm not all that familiar with. And I get to hear fun and amazing stories about how God is at work in their lives. As a planner, I try to book these conversations weeks or even months in advance so I can be prepared when the time comes for us to talk. Every once in a while, a guest will have to cancel or reschedule. And although I'm disappointed for the cancellation, I remind myself that these conversations are intended to be about God and the work He is doing. So I say, I'm confident in God's perfect timing, and that includes which guests sign up and when they do that. I trust that God has a perfect plan. So when Greg accepted my invitation to chat on the podcast today, I knew that God had something special he wanted me, and dare I say, something for us to hear from Greg. So be sure to stick around. Before we hear today's conversation, I want to take a couple of minutes to tell you about another great program run by Mercy Inc. Bridge to Reading is a program run in 12 Central African countries, as well as the country of Colombia in South America. This program teaches adults how to read and write in their own language, which has a number of benefits. Just think what advantages come economically to people who can read and write business transactions. And in many of these countries, women are marginalized after they pass through their childbearing years, so being able to read and write offers them dignity in the home. Or my favorite story is of pastors who are teaching the gospel but can't read it so they have their children read the Bible to them. Just think what it would be like for these pastors to be able to read God's Word on their own. If you want to find out more about the work Mercy Inc. is doing through Bridge to Reading, head over to christianmusicarchive.com mercy. There, you can read about our partnership with Mercy Inc., as well as see how you can get involved and further the work of teaching adults how to read around the world. That's christianmusicarchive.com slash mercy. And thanks for your willingness to help. Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters is my guest today. He and the guys in the Headhunters have been making music since the 1960s when they started a band together for an elementary school talent show. Now, I first heard about Greg when he was working with Daryl Mansfield, but I've gone on to discover that he released a gospel blues project called The Mighty Jeremiah's, 
And he's also worked with the likes of Dale Thompson and Bride and Phil Kagey, just to name a few. Greg is a fellow believer who has a passion for Jesus, and we looked back over his career to see how God's plan has brought him right to where he is today. We'll talk about music and faith and cola. How's that for a teaser? Let's just jump right into the conversation. Here is Greg Martin. Now, I'm drinking ski, by the way. It's not beer or whiskey or anything. It's a soft drink like uh, Mountain Dew is what it's like. Well, that's my favorite drink. In fact, you can see I've I've emptied two or three of those cans today myself. So <laughs> This is our version of Mountain Dew. Is it a Kentucky, a local Kentucky thing? Pretty much. It's only in certain areas. When I was a kid, we'd go to the country store, which I thought was the greatest experience ever was. <laughs> and they had these soft drinks that we didn't have in Louisville, like Lotta Cola, Double Cola, <laughs> Seabreeze, and uh, Ski. And I thought ski is just a fabulous, uh, it, it tastes great. And if you've heard our song, Dumas Walker, mm-hmm. which pretty much bought us a house, thank God, you know, <laughs> we mentioned we mentioned a bottle of ski in there. And everybody, everybody said, oh, are you talking about brewski? You're talking about whiskey? Yeah. You're talking about this? We're just talking about a soft drink. <laughs> it's just our version. Now, I think you can get it in certain parts of the country, but it's more of a regional type thing. Yeah. So has it been around for a while? Because, I mean, if you said you were getting it as a kid. Yeah, I was getting it back in 64, 1965. So I'm assuming it popped on the scene early 60s is what I think. Okay. And the bottling company, one of the bottling companies was out of Illinois. And the story was when they created the drink, they had a contest for someone to come up with a name. And uh, some lady had been skiing that weekend, and she wanted to call it Ski, and that's how it happened. <laughs> and so it's bottled in Illinois. It's been it was bottled in Greensburg, Kentucky, for years, and it was been bottled in uh, Chattanooga, uh, I believe, in Ohio. So it's just little little different places, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, Greg, I was doing a bit of research on on you, and you know, you're talking about getting ski as a kid. But mm-hmm. you and Richard and Fred, you started playing music together as when you were 14. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we started. I, we started in 1968. Okay. I met Richard Young. It was around November, early November, 1968. And it was through a second cousin by the name of Larry Sullivan. And Larry and I, Larry's, funny thing is a little background about Larry. Larry's uncles were Lonzo and Oscar, who were huge country stars in the 50s and 60s, you know, in Nashville. They toured with uh, Eddie Arnold, and but they have they sold a lot of records. They're from Midcalf County as well. Okay. But anyway, you know, me and Larry uh, were pretty close, and we rode the same school bus together. And I got on the bus one morning, and Larry says, hey, there's a fella just transferred from North Midcalf to Edmonton Elementary because his dad is going to have to do some teaching there. It turned out to be Richard. And we're, so Larry says, you know, we're going to have a talent show. Would you like to play? Which I really had never played in front of anybody at that point. And I said, well, sure. I, you know, I'd love to. And um, so I met Richard at the cafeteria kitchen at Edmonton Elementary, which was just the high school was just a few hundred feet away okay. from the he and I met for the first time, and we sat down at this uh, in the kitchen, 
<laughs> I can just see it in my mind now, <laughs> you know, and uh, we, we attempted and jammed on Born to be Wild, Sunshine of Your Love, Hey Jude, you know, they were real popular at that yeah. time. And, may, and maybe Revolution by the Beatles, I don't know. But uh, so we decided, yeah, let's do this. So me and Richard, along with some other schoolmates, we did this little play. We played music, and they were walking. There was kids walking around. Uh, Larry was walking around reciting hippie poetry. <laughs> you know, everybody was dressed in their finest Midgap County hippie garb <laughs> and play our fuzzed-out versions of whatever we could. And, you know, and uh, so – you know, we had, I don't know if we placed very well or not, but we had fun. And and after it was over, Richard said, well, I've got a band with my brother Fred and my cousin Anthony. Would you like to come jam with us? And I said, yeah, let's do it. So I went over and jammed in their living room. I think initially we, we went to the practice house and we jammed with another bass player by the name of Steve Perkins. And uh, Steve, God bless him, he was a he's a dear friend. But he, he was a wild child. So he only <laughs> stuck around for like maybe one rehearsal. Then we got, then I got together with Fred, Richard, and Anthony, their cousin on bass. And I'll tell you, they was an instant groove that they all, the three had. Yeah. Because there were two brothers and a cousin. Yeah. And, and I remember when Anthony kicked in on the bass, we were playing Revolution. And I went, oh man, this is cool. So that started that little adventure there and then our first gig was uh we played the 1968 toys for tots show at glasgow with uh, some local regional bands from around here and uh we were not really quite prepared for it but <laughs> we, we held our heads up and we did it <laughs> you know then i think we played a birthday party right after that and there again and we were just off and running doing what we did so yeah well, I love the name of your band when you were young. It was, what was it, the Itchy Brothers? Yeah, yeah. It went through uh, several transformations. Uh, now, in 68, it was called The Truce. Okay. <laughs> then it morphed into Aftermath. And there was a brief time it was called Mandrake Velvet. And then in 73, if you move to 73, we, uh, we recorded a single at this little studio in Burksville, Kentucky. Uh, it was in the fall of 73. I'm thinking it was November, something special about November. I'm not really sure what it is. <laughs> anyway, we recorded a, a little 45 shotgun Effie and rock and roller. And we decided we needed a name and uh, itchy brother was it. And itchy brother. If you go back uh, to a cartoon, King Leonardo and friends, uh -huh. itchy brother was King, Leon King Leonardo was the king of Bongo Congo. And his able assistant was a, a skunk by the name of Odie Coloni. <laughs> <laughs> and he was uprighteous, you know, a righteous leader. But he had a, an evil brother named Itchy Brother who hung out with Biggie Rat. And they were always trying to overthrow the kingdom. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that's where the name came from, man. It came from that. I, and it stuck for years. It stuck for a lot of years, you know. Well, so eventually, I mean, you guys played together in a lot of bands and stuff. And so when did you guys become the Kentucky Headhunters? That was like about 86, 87, something yeah. like that? Yeah, it officially became the Headhunters in 86. This itchy brother tried so hard to get a record contract. It was a really, really good rock and roll band. Uh, you know, we were 
kind of hillbilly version of Montrose with a little who it little zeppelin thrown mm-hmm. in nothing like the headhunters really nothing real i mean okay. i guess similarities but it was it was a different bag altogether yeah uh, we were attempting to be a english rock band <laughs> so we tried real hard from 77 to 81 to get a record deal and we even went to new york in 81 showcase for record labels but disco was making its move mm. and unfortunately it just wasn't meant to be at that time so i had gotten married in 79 in in 81 we had to we had to part ways for a little bit which was sad i took a i took a a gig with ronnie mcdowell oh yeah dave it's all kind of a god thing because the day that i started with ronnie mcdowell doug phelps auditioned for ronnie mcdowell who's the singer in the headhunters now yeah so, you know, if I had to done the Ronnie McDowell thing, I would have never met Doug Phelps. We would have met him, I guess, some sometime down the, the road. Yeah. By 1986, you know, Ronnie was a great boss. We were learning a lot. We were working a lot. We were making a, a fair living. Uh, you know, we were touring. We were on TV. We were actually recording with him. Uh, there was something missing musically. So me and Richard Fred started talking about putting our old band back together and there wasn't really any grand plan or anything it was just like hey let's get together yeah the music we can go to bowling green and play every now and then you know maybe louisville if we want to and uh, the headhunters officially started probably around uh 1986 probably springtime and it, we I, we had a chemistry there was a chemistry it was a god-given chemistry in that band uh, it, it was undeniable because it drew people, yeah. and uh, I don't know. It, it, it was strange. You could see something going on that was way bigger than us, you know. Well, the world noticed it, too, because then in 89, the Academy of Country Music recognized you as the top new vocal group. You got a Grammy in 1990. You got the Country yeah. Music Association Album of the Year in 1990, Vocal Group of the Year 91. You guys really started some momentum. Yeah, yeah actually, it, it it hit early for us. And maybe that was a good thing because it built a foundation that we're still working. Mm-hmm. We ended up signing with Mercury and I had to end up quitting Ronnie McDowell. We signed our contracts and I, and I thought, okay, I've got my good gig with Ronnie McDowell is ending now. And I thought, okay, this we'll put this one album out and it'll go downhill. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what, to, what was going to happen. Well, you know, you've mentioned Greg several times throughout the conversation about things that just kind of happened. And you said, Oh, it was definitely a God thing. Uh, and, and you've talked, you and I've talked a little bit before in preparing for yeah. this conversation and you're very definitely your heart for Jesus shows. So Thank I would you. be interested and, and I love hearing people's stories about how they became a Christ follower and decided that Jesus is somebody that I need to have in my life. And, and then how did that, that decision to follow Christ, how did that fit into your musical journey? Well, I, I grew up in a Christian household. My mother was a strong Christian. She came out of a very strong uh, missionary Baptist family. Mm-hmm. And my, my dad was a Christian, but it took him a while to really find out where he was in, in the walk, so to speak. Yeah. He had, in the Church of Christ in the early 70s. You know, I grew up in a household where when Billy Graham came on, we would watch Billy, we would, were made to watch Billy Graham. Mm. And 
you know, and I, I don't mean this in, to, disrespectful because I love Dr. Graham, but you know, we, we're kids. We want to play baseball and stuff, but what my mother was doing, you know, she, she was planting seeds, but doing that. So, you know, you know, the, you know, the word does not return void and whatever verses we were hearing Dr. Graham expound on, it was, it was being planted here, you know, in our hearts. So, and I remember, you know, you know, we, we did go, go to church when we could. We didn't have really have a home church while we were living in Louisville for some reason. I'm, I'm not really sure why, but uh, I remember visiting my aunt's house. And I remember sitting on the porch many nights, just looking up at the sky going, you know, because I knew hearing Revelation preached that Jesus was going to come back. And I went, I'm not ready. If he come back tonight, hmm. out of the eastern skies, I'm not ready. Yeah. You know. And that was just, that was the Holy Spirit working with me. Yeah. And so when we moved to Midcalf County, we started going to uh, Sulphur Springs Baptist Church. So in the summer of 1967, during the summer of love, there was a little revival at the church. And Brother Jimmy Hubbard was a preacher, and he was preaching at night. I just felt an over, uh, overwhelming need to go forward and give my life to Christ, and that's what I did. I didn't understand what I was really doing, mm. but the, my spirit did. Yeah, and I didn't understand grace at that point. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I didn't really study the Bible that much at that point. But I knew that I was saved as soon as I went forward. Of course, I was, and then I'm baptized in a creek with a bunch of other kids. Yeah, that was how I accepted Christ. But that was through a lot of uh, seed planting through my my parents and my my family around me and just hearing Billy Graham and what little church I did go to at that point, but uh, it happened. And so how did the music thing play into this? Well, you know, when we moved from Louisville, I had already started picking up guitar and pecking around on it. Cause my brother Gary had a nice Stratocaster, mm -hmm. but my cousin Larry said, man, there's this band. I want you to go hear. I want you to hear this guitar player because he knew I was really getting interested in guitar. It was a group called Elysian Field. They were from Louisville. They had a record contract with Imperial Records. And so <laughs> Larry took me to see this band. And, and uh, as soon as they started playing, Dave, it was, a, I, it, it was the strangest feeling. There's been two or three times I've experienced this where you know this is like a calling of some mm -hmm. kind. That this is what you're going to end up doing right here. And I knew right that moment that music was going to be what I was supposed to do. Wow. The only time I've really had those feelings when I met my wife that I'm married to now and, and the headhunters. But anyway, uh, so after that, after that day, after I saw Elysian Field, the guitarist's name was Frank Bugby, who I talked to today. We're, we're friends. Now, and I tell Frank, I say, Frank, you're the reason I'm doing what I'm doing, you yeah. know. I hope it I hope it makes him feel good, you know. And uh, we we talk a couple times a week. But about that time, my brother saw what was going on in my life. He gave me a, a Gretsch Silverjet guitar that he had painted black because he hated the color. <laughs> I wish I, I've got a reissue of it. I don't have the original guitar, but yeah. Silverjet guitar. He gave me that a magnetone amplifier and a box of records which had bb king lonnie mack travis womack 
uh, Chuck Berry, stuff like that. Yeah. And he gave, and he also gave me this makeshift turntable. So I would plug that into the magnetone amplifier with a Y jack, so I could hear music. Yeah. I didn't have no. I just didn't have a good stereo. I didn't have anything. You know, right. we 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 were poor, but we were average income family. We just didn't have a whole lot. Didn't have. So anyway. After I had that great experience in Elysian Field, he saw I needed a guitar, and he got me the guitar. And it just goes on and on, little connecting things. And sometimes things don't really happen as fast as you think they should, but there's a reason they don't. It's just like, why did Itchy Brother not make it? Well, God wasn't going to let that happen right then. He had a bigger plan for us, you know. Well, when we were talking last week, getting ready for this, you know, a lot of bands, when I'm talking to folks, I say, well, where did you get your start? And what? And of course, everybody references the Beatles. I mean, because they were such a groundbreaking thing. But one of the people you mentioned was this sure. guitar player from Glass Harp called Phil Kagey. Oh, Phil Kagey. Yeah. And you talked about how he was instrumental in, in your music as well. Well, yes, he was instrumental on, on two or three different levels. Uh, well, uh, when I really, in 68, when the music bug really bit me and I decided that's what I wanted to do, you know, it was a, a constant discovery of great guitarists. I mean, let's face it from 66, 67 to early seventies, there was a great barrage of so many great players. Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, uh, Oh my Lord, Carlos Santana. And, and just an onslaught. It was just every yeah. discover another player. You go, Wow. Well, I remember, you know, one Thanksgiving, hooking up with some old friends from Louisville, which I stayed in touch with a lot of my friends. And I remember hanging out with these guys. And a couple of them had went to Ludlow's Garage in Ohio. And they heard this band called Glass Harp. And they said, the guitar player sound makes it sound like a violin. You know, I said, he's amazing. And, and of course, being a guitar fanatic at the time, I, I want to know who this guy was, which I just tucked that in the back and followed it away. And I, I never really got to hear Glass Harp until 71 or 72. I was at Rice's radio in Glasgow, and Miss Rice had a box of uh, 45, promo 45s. And I remember buying a Savoy Brown 45, and I was looking through it, that was a Glass Harp 45, the Village Queen, and children's fantasy so i took it home and i went whoa i like this guy's playing yeah so about a month later i went to louisville and uh at doop shop i bought uh glass harp synergy mm-hmm. and then i backtracked and i ended up buying uh the first album and then i found uh late uh, about a few months later they released it makes me glad yeah. so they had three releases on Decca Records, I yep, believe it was, it was Decca. Decca. Yep. And uh so I mean I was just I was just I loved what Phil was doing, but I knew underlying and I knew his story. I, I read somewhere in like one of the magazines at the time, it was like song hits or something that he was a, a follower of Jesus. Yeah. So I knew there was a spiritual connection there. So I man, I was just a big fan of Phil for years and years. I didn't meet Phil until the 90s uh, but there was this i was doing an interview for the headhunters out of ohio and the girl's name was anastasia it was some wild name anastasia or something like that and she was from cleveland and i said oh I, 
there was a band from Cleveland called Glass Harp. She said, oh, I knew those guys. She, uh, we talked about Glass Harp. And she said, I know a guy lives in Pennsylvania. He collects a lot of shows, and he knows Phil and the guys. She gave me uh, Neil Williams's number, and I called Neil one day. Say, hey, I'm Greg Martin with the Headhunters. He said, No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, I am. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, I said, Man, I just got off the phone with uh, this lady that interviewed me, and she said you were the Glass Harp number one taking care of business Glass Harp fan. And he was. He sent me a bunch of cassettes, and he hooked me up with Phil. He gave me Phil's number, and me and Phil just hit it off. And I went down uh, to Phil's house outside of Nashville. Phil was so at peace about everything, and I knew that I wasn't. Our band had, you know, our band at that point, in 92, we had an implosion with the band. Mm -hmm. The Phelps brothers left. So I was just, I don't know, man. Probably a little bitter about it, uh, a little mad about it, a little anger, you know, not that bad, but still, I didn't understand what had happened. And I put so much into the band, and all of a sudden it kind of just blew apart. But we kept it going. But Phil, we hung out that day and we just hit it off and we become friends. And by 1994, you know, I just had an over, the Holy Spirit was dealing with me. And I went to a, my aunt kept inviting me to church. And said, uh, she invited me to church. And, you know, I, I, part of me, get, uh, I don't want to go to church. <laughs> yeah. But I reluctantly kind of went uh, one Sunday in February of 94. And when they gave me the altar call, I went up and took care of business. And it was it was amazing what came off my back at that point, you know. Yeah. And Phil had a lot to do with that. I, I, I do credit Phil. And, uh, you know, because I just saw Phil's life wasn't dictated how popular he was, mm. how many he was selling. He was happy. He's such a creative person and such a great musician. Uh, he just, you know, he loves the Lord, you know. And him and Bernadette are sweet people. So how how cool was it then for you to then, because you released a gospel album uh, under the name of The Mighty Jeremiah's, and Phil plays on it with you. Yeah, that was really cool. And we've got to play together several times, you know, He's invited me down to his church. This has been a long time. This, you know, I've, 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 I've got to play with Glass Harp, and I've got to, yeah. So, yeah, the buddy Jeremiah's, I got him to come up to Glasgow. He drove up, and we had barbecue, and then we went and played on a couple of songs, had great fellowship, and uh, he's on that album. Yeah. That's just, it's one of those things, you know, how God works, you know, like uh, even going back to the Frank Budby thing to Phil. And, you know, got getting to be friends. I'm friends with Billy Gibbons, too. Mm. He's a sweet guy. But he's always been very encouraging. Uh, Eric Clapton walked by me at the uh, award shows one time, and I could only utter some kind of noise, and he just kind of nodded at me, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very cool, man. It's it's uh, To get to know Phil, he called me one Sunday, and he said, I'm thinking he, I, I did this little 45 record. It's under the Greg Martin group, and it's just these two little instrumentals. It's like it's almost like going back to the '60s. And he bought a copy, and he just loves that little 45. Every so often, he will send me a, a picture of it. Say, "I love this." <laughs> and so he told me last year he was going to make a 45, and he said, uh, "Do you have any idea of any pressing plants?" And I gave him a couple of ideas, but 
not really sure what he'd love doing, you know. Well, I will admit, I mean, I've I've known of the Kentucky Headhunters, and I've known your music. I spent a number of years being exclusively listening to Christian music. And recently, I'm getting back into that. There's a lot of strong Christians that are making music that is not quote-unquote Christian music and are using their faith as seed of the things that they're singing and, and talking and playing about. But I discovered you personally because you'd recorded with Daryl Mansfield. Now, <laughs> now Daryl... When I was first, I was raised in a very conservative home, and the conservative home, you know, B.J. Thomas was a little bit too out there for my family. <laughs> but, Are you talking about his uh, secular stuff? Or, his, uh, or even his Christian stuff. Even his Christian stuff was too so far out there for my family. Yeah. So were your family more into um, Southern gospel? What were they Not into? even that. It would be the hymns, straight out of the hymn book. So Again. Okay, and, and you. This would have been where were you living at that point? I was living in Idaho at that time, in Boise, Idaho. Okay, but, Boise. But I was a little bit of a rebellious preacher's kid, and I got connected with the guy at the Christian bookstore in Boise, Idaho, and he started feeding me all this music, and yeah. he fed me Daryl Mansfield's Revelation. Yeah, and I flipped out. Yeah. It's like. Oh my goodness, this is the kind of music I want to listen to. Now I just got to convince mom and dad. Well, anyway, so that's how I got connected with Daryl Mansfield. I, and I bought everything that, or, or bought or, yeah. you know, got everything that he had. And then I get this Kentucky Blues with Daryl Mansfield and yes. Greg Martin. And I'm going, I don't know who Greg Martin is. And so I start looking it up and go, oh, I'm making this connection. So that's how I got connected with you. So how did you get connected with Daryl? Well, uh, let me tell you, look, Kentucky Blues, a lot of the same stuff is over on, it's weird because we, me and Daryl owned the Jarrett, we owned those tracks together. Okay. So he took some of the tracks and done things with them. And I, it, it was about four or five tracks ended up on the Mario Jeremiah's. They're, they're very similar. So I think he did Respect Yourself mm -hmm. as well. They're really the same basic track. There may be a few changes. So yeah, I've got Kentucky Blues here. So I think it's over there. You know, I've got it. Uh, how did I meet Daryl? Boy, that's wild. I'm trying to remember the Daryl Hall connection. Oh, I know what it was. I know exactly. One of the guys in our crew came on the bus one day because he knew that I was starting to listen to a lot of Christian music. And he said, you might want I found this at a, at a bookstore. You might want to check it out. It was Daryl Mansfield. And I can't, I can't think which album it is. It's got a harmonica on the cover. Well, that it's could be half of them. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the blues things. And uh, I don't know which one it is now. I, I'd have to go look. But there was an address on it. And uh, I think I wrote him a letter. And he called me. And we hit, there again, we hit a lot. And I started, you know, he said, you want to go, hey, you want to go play with me? And I was, and back then there was always these windows where after 92, there was a time when we didn't, we didn't work as much as we should because we were, you know, after the Phelps's left, we had a pretty rough time there mm -hmm. for a while. But I would, I go, yeah, man, he would send me a ticket. I'd end up meeting him in Florida, North Carolina, California, or wherever. Yeah. We'd go, we used to call ourselves Paul and Silas. We'd just go running around playing the blues. <laughs> but you know, during that, another thing had happened, Dave, we were on the road and I, we were working our way to California. We were going to play, I can't remember. It was, it was outside of, uh, it was not very far from 
Calvary Chapel at Costa Mesa. And I flew out ahead with no, I just didn't want to deal with the bus ride. I guess we, we had more money back then where I could fly. I flew out to Costa Mesa, I was staying in Costa Mesa. And I was out walking one day and I saw, oh, there's Calvary Chapel. And I went to Calvary Chapel that night and Chuck was preaching. Mm. And I went, oh, Lord. You know, I thought, I love this guy. And then I got to know him a little bit. And I started really studying the Bible through him. Then I learned about Jay Vernon McGee and all these other cool guys. But there again, Daryl's in the the mix too, you know, and it it was just a great time, you know. Well, Greg, one of the things that I find emotionally connecting to me is people who say, I'm going to use my skill to be in the world and you, you've, you've not only played with the headhunters, I'm looking, our listeners don't have the benefit of video, but we got a Charlie Daniels band road case behind you. Yeah. Yeah. You've been doing all this stuff, but in the, the back of your mind as especially more as an adult, you've got Jesus directing what you're doing. Yeah. So, and, and I think a lot of times in our society, we say, well, if you're a Christian, you have to be singing in church. Right. And there's a place for that. A hundred percent, there's a place for that. But right. what was it in your mind that you said, no, I can still follow Jesus and I can be a, a disciple of Christ and yet still be making music that's not in the Christian industry, so to speak? I started playing in 68. It was about a year or two later that, you know, people would hit me up, uh, say uh, there was a little quartet at Edmonton, the Edmonton Quartet. Uh, They wanted me to play with them, which was, you know, that's what we're talking about, playing in church and everything. Mm -hmm. They were never, they knew I played rock and roll on the side. They never had a problem with it. But I I started playing with them. And I also played with the Grace Union Quartet and also played with the Temple Trio. These were little regional local bands Mm -hmm. that had records out. Uh, around here and i was starting to do studio work with these folks but you know when i was playing with those guys in the back of my mind i was thinking it's, i i didn't realize in 70 that there was already a counterculture christian music thing going on i didn't know about love song i really didn't know much about glass harp uh, or what bill Kagi was doing after he left glass harp mm-hmm. uh we just didn't have access to that. But I remember around 71 or 72, somebody gave me an album called the U.S. Apple Corps. Have you heard that? I haven't. The U.S. Apple I'm going to write this down. Seriously, man. It was, on, it was on Shelby Singleton's label out of Nashville. And it was, it was heavy gospel music. It, you know, I remember hearing that. And I'm, but I kept thinking, you know, why can't you take something as heavy as Cream or heavy as Zeppelin and use that for Jesus. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was a couple of times I would put things together. Of course, <laughs> we went, I went to a church in 77 or something like that. And we about scared the pastor to yeah. death. Yeah. And, but I, but, but there again, there again, I, I know that there was a purpose also for, for people like myself or other people that are believers that we were needed in the trenches of life to uh, just to be a light, uh, spread the salt, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not always been completely successful, but uh, you know, some, sometimes things kind of uh, go sideways. But 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 as I got older, I realized that uh, the most important thing in life is having Jesus. Listen, I'm sixty. I'm sixty. I'll be sixty nine in March. Uh, 
God only knows how many more years I've got left at this. I'd like to do something vital uh, till I can't do it, you know, and I, I, I ask God every day. So I want to, you know, the headhunters has been really great employment. Uh, I'm playing with my friends, my cousins, my family, but I, I keep thinking, well, maybe there's something else that maybe God wants me to do, which he hasn't really revealed it. But I, there, I have done other things like meeting Daryl Mansfield, Phil Kagey. So there's been things that, that, when I look back, I go, okay, you know, I have done things, but uh, I'm still, feel like there's still something else to do, but I'm not really quite sure yet. Yeah. But I, there is room for folks to go out there and maybe we're the only Bible they'll ever read. Yeah. You know, we just need to go out there and live the best we can. And uh, Lord, you know, it's, it's crazy. The music business is nuts. It'll spit you out. Well, I've heard, I've had two thoughts that come to my mind about this. You know, the Bible talks about go into all the world and make disciples. It doesn't say go to church and sing songs. God wants to salt out the shaker. Yep. You've heard that. Yep. Like I say, there's a, I, I have a, a big respect for people who take music and, and help us worship in church. I, I'm not knocking that at all. But to be able to say, I'm going to use my gifting to be out and be the salt and be the light. The other piece of that is my my pastor has told us, you know, it's not my job, it's not your job to convert people. No. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now it's our job to, like you said about about the ant and the folks plant the seeds. That's yeah. our job. But it's God's yeah. job to water it. The Holy Spirit's gonna bring it to fruition. So I just love hearing people who are saying, I'm a passionate believer of Jesus. But I'm in yeah. the world because that's where the difference needs to be made. Well, Jesus is the most important thing. And sometimes when that gets out of line, that's when you get the dryness, you know, in the when you're chasing the business or letting the business uh, dictate what you're doing. And, yes. and I mean, obviously, we all have to work. You know, we have families, you know, and God has given me. He's blessed my family so much you know way more than i deserve you know but uh you know where i'm at in life now if just just i want to keep doing what i'm doing and then may then god may point another direction someday i don't know you know you just got to be open he's done it before every saturday i send out a newsletter to a bunch of folks who are praying for people who yes. make Christian music and who are making music and using music as a ministry tool. How can we specifically be praying, praying for you, Greg, in the weeks and the months that are coming up ahead? Guidance and wisdom. That's all I need. And I pray for the guys in my band. Yeah. Each one of them, at least you know, that they're, that they're, uh, they're doing okay, which we are. We're, you know, we're off this month, which is fine, but uh, we start back touring next month. And uh, I just pray for, for everybody within the headhunter organization. But uh, I just pray for God's will in every one of our lives. He's got a plan, and that's what we need to be doing. A great big thanks to Greg for walking down memory lane with me today. Greg has a lot of memorable stories, and we only got to hear a few of them. And I sure enjoyed hearing how he got to work with some of my favorite Christian artists. But more importantly than all of that is Greg's repeated statement that God had a plan for his life. That probably rings true with me because I myself, well, I'm a planner. I like to know each step between where I am and where I'm going. 
I'm big on to-do lists, and my wife says that I have a spreadsheet for everything because I document every detail of my life. But during my chat with Greg today, I started wondering if my plans make it hard for me to be aware of God's plan. Is my course so charted out that I don't leave room for Holy Spirit to put me on a different path or to meet a different group of people? Am I so, quote, organized that I miss some of these opportunities? Jeremiah 29, 11 says it this way, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Psalm 46 reminds me that God is our refuge and strength. What follows that is a description of God at work bringing joy to the city, using his thunderous voice to melt the earth, and even being our fortress in times of need. And at the end of that chapter, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. So that brings me to the question, am I relaxing in God's perfect plan for me? Do I let my plans interrupt the miraculous opportunities that God might bring into my path? This conversation was a good reminder for me, and maybe it was timely for you too. As always, thank you for joining me for this conversation today. I am grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, would you consider helping fund the work that I do? When you contribute any amount each month, you not only help fund the podcast, but also make sure that the companion website stays updated and free to everyone who wants to learn about the people and albums of Christian music. I'm grateful for your contribution of any amount, which you can make at christianmusicarchive.com slash donate. And when you do contribute, I add you to the list of folks who can help write questions for my guest interviews. So thank you for visiting christianmusicarchive.com slash donate. Next week, I'm talking with Josh Bannister of the British group Lion of Judah. This is a fun conversation about how he sees Christian music being reborn in the United Kingdom, and I'm excited to share that with you. So be sure to join me next week and every week when I share stories of the people you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. And to close things out this week, I want to remind you this. God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. It's time for another Mischievous Mowers Miscellaneous Misquotes. Sometimes I like to go to the hardware store and run around with a screwdriver shouting, Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a drill. 